Hello and welcome back to another episode of What the Fault at the Euros. There's been plenty of talent at the tournament, but you simply cannot knock the work ethic and the commitment of my particular team, the What the Fault team, over the past month. Unbelievably, this is our 14th episode of the tournament and absolutely everyone on today's show is desperate absolutely desperate to ensure it's not the final one where we mention their team as we head into the quarterfinal between Ukraine and England in Rome this Saturday. To join us once again, regular, now a regular What The Folk uh, guest, should I say, is of course all-round level-headed good guy from Jills in the Blood. Matt, how are the nerves? I'm all right. I feel all right, yeah. I think after beating Germany, like we said last night on the review show with uh, Jack, it's almost like and this is no disrespect to Ukraine and then potentially, but we're not doing that because we said that last night until someone bought a ticket for the semis. <laughs> who was that? German, Ger- <laughs> I don't know, some idiot who hosts this show. <laughs> uh, we said Germany was, was the toughest out of the potential trio, didn't we? So, like we said last night as well, you, you're not going to get an easy game. It's the quarterfinals of the European Championships and these teams are in the last eight for a reason and Ukraine are in there for a reason, like England are. And, we said last night we can't just turn up and expect to roll them over because, again, no disrespect. And I don't want this to come across the wrong way. This is probably their final. They're thinking if we can get through England like we thought if we can get through Germany, then suddenly we've got a very winnable semi-final. It's it's the spirit of Greece, isn't it? It's like if Ukraine, Denmark, or, I mean Denmark, okay, won it in 92, but Ukraine, uh, Switzerland... If you beat the the bigger team, in inverted commas, that you come up against, it suddenly becomes the spirit of Greece and you're going to go all the way through, 1-0 all the way through. But anyway, I'm, I'm scaring myself here, shit. Um, our second guest, of course, uh, another debutant, and he's here to give us the outlook from the Ukrainian perspective. It's the second best Ukrainian man in the world behind Sergei Rebrov. Andrew <laughs> Todos from Zoya Londonsk, I think I pronounced that correctly. Uh, the number one source on the internet for Ukrainian football in English. Welcome to the show, Andrew. How are you doing, mate? You all right? Thanks, guys. Um, yeah, very, looking forward to talking a bit about this quarterfinal. Pretty spent still from uh, that from that round of sixteen match, which I was at. But you know, onwards to Rome. How was your experience of Hampden Park? Obviously, you scored in the last minute, but um, I seen the photos and you looked pretty buzzing, mate. Yeah, I was buzzing. Uh, it was a great atmosphere for the amount of fans that were there. But I mean, in general, I don't know. I, there's not nothing against Hamden Park itself, but I mean, I just don't really like stadiums that have got running track sort of things around them. And it's just like, it sort of takes away something from from football matches. It's the same in Kiev. The main stadium there is the Olympijski and that, that's got a running track as well. Just bring the fans closer to the pitch, for God's sake. Um, it'll just make, make a bit more, make a bit more entertainment. And I mean, yeah, at Hamden, only about 500 or so Ukraine fans, but they made a lot of noise and was a great game in the end. I've seen it when the goal went and I've seen, obviously, the goal scorer like, dive into the all 500. I was like, that's not socially distant or safe. <laughs> but you seem to have a lot of fun. I had a few mates out there as well. But my main question would be, how many disappointed Scottish-looking people in Germany shirts did you see? <laughs> not too many. What was weird was I was there a bit earlier because I was doing a few media commitments and the England game was obviously on on the big screens because for whatever reason, you have to come in super early because of COVID. But yeah, for Hamden, I don't know if this is in any other stadiums, but they were only serving water. Mm-hmm. You weren't allowed any other food or drink. You were allowed to bring in like your own snacks and stuff if you're a fan. 
um, but obviously the merch shop was still wide open so you know that that's uh, that's how things work over there but um yeah the england game was on and when england scored the second goal bloody hell like half the stadium erupted so i don't know who was in there um <laughs> maybe a few rangers fans yeah, I was, you took the word, <laughs> literally took the words out of my mouth. Um, there'll be a lot of Scottish listeners. Obviously, uh, we did Scotland shows as well before they the went out. Um, there'll be a lot of listeners who totally agree, and, and I agree with that. The Hamden Park one in track, a hundred percent. It's uh, yeah, that, that, I don't, I don't think many people like it, but it's good when it's good. Which unfortunately for Scotland is not that often. Um, Matt, I'll come to you first. Uh, I'll be honest with you. I'm really not sure I've came down from the Germany game yet. Um, I think just a combination of how long it's been, the fact that we've done the Germans for the first time in my life that actually mattered and just everything that's coming back from it and the quick turnaround in games. But have you been able to yourself focus on the quarterfinal with a a clearer head and and not think about what's just gone past? Not really, no. I don't think I have. I think, like yesterday, I went out. I mean, I don't buy newspapers as a rule. I much prefer doing this type of thing and getting output and content from fans because you know that you're getting a proper opinion for want of a better word but I went out and bought the, the Times that's an expensive newspaper <laughs> um, but I think I've read about two pages of that and it's been folded up and I'll probably read it over the weekend but yeah it's um, it's a tough one because like we said last night that Germany game regardless of what happens from here on into England is going to be remembered for a long time because of the fact it was <clears throat> excuse me the first knockout victory since 1966 I know we beat them in Euro 2000 but we finished third and fourth in the group so it meant sod all we've beaten them in friendlies if there is a friendly against the Germans but no I think probably until probably Saturday I think I'm still going to be thinking about the German game I think I've watched the highlights about three times the goals about 20 times but the same as the players we've got to switch attention and switch it fast because we don't want to get caught out because like Gareth Southgate said Tuesday night means absolutely nothing if we don't turn up on Saturday evening and Ukraine knock us out for all the, like the, the videos we've been watching of German fans celebrating Muller's chance and then devastatingly holding their head in their hands and we're laughing at it and we've seen a few English people jump up and down in Berlin and around the world it's going to come back on us within days if, if we don't do the job on, on Saturday and that that's that's sort of dawning on me an awful lot and the pressure is kind of building up which is is probably the, the, a bit of a benefit to Ukraine I mean I'll come back to you Andrew you are coming in from a different perspective I think if our big game felt like England Germany but this is now a quarter final and I think again like Matt said I hope it's no disrespect to anyone who's listening from a Ukrainian perspective but it's the furthest Ukraine have got well you came in on the back of hysteria as well um you know, it, you've won the game the last minute of extra time. You've got as far as you ever have done in a, a major tournament, I think, or especially in the Euros. Um, Ukraine must be still bouncing after winning that game against Sweden in the last minute of extra time. So how how is the nation's mood in Ukraine going into the game? Yes. Yeah, so after the match, there was like lots of big screens in Kyiv and stuff like that, watching it. Huge celebrations, you know, the sort of car horns and all that stuff going on well into the early hours. However, um, I get. I guess I agree with the fact that this is like the biggest game in their history, technically, because they've got the chance to move to a semi-final. They made the quarters of the World Cup That's in right. 2006, but lost to Italy 3-0 um, in that one. Shevchenko also being in that side, but now being the manager leading them to this one. 
However, I think it's a bit different because for some reason, I would actually even class the game against Sweden was the cup final on the basis of how poor Ukraine ended the group stage where they lost to Austria and the performance was really underwhelming and they literally got through on the, you know, from on the scruff of the, on the scruff of the neck, thanks to other results going their way. And, you know, if it wasn't for winning against Sweden, even without the dramatic last minute emotions, it probably would have felt like a massive failure of the tournament. And now Ukraine have, I guess, fulfilled expectations and anything now is like a bit of a bonus. So like Matt was saying, and you were saying the pressures on England, I'd say the pressures off Ukraine and now they're sort of free to sort of enjoy themselves really um, after redeeming themselves in that Sweden game, essentially. And I suppose in a sense as well, you've got probably, I mean, he's a legend. I mean, I've never been to Ukraine. I would assume Shevchenko was a legend. You would assume he is. Um, but he's also someone who probably, well, he did play in Champions League finals. He had disappointments in them, missed the penalty against Liverpool, won them, won massive, massive games. So it's not like they've got like a, it's not like that entire squad doesn't know what it's like to be in the last stages of a tournament. You've got a man who's been there and done it. And could, in the same way that we speak about Southgate being perfect because he's got big tournament experience. So is Shevchenko. And that, that's a big, that's a big thing to have, isn't it, at the moment as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think his influence in the respect that the majority of the players, he was probably their childhood icon, really. And, you know, having that as your, like, coach manager is always going to help benefit, you know, throughout. He's still quite relatively young, around 45, 46 or something. So he's always getting involved in training, literally getting crunching tackles in, helping with shooting practice, helping defenders, like, with positioning and stuff against his sort of movement. So he's fully stuck in. He's basically a player coach, but without actually playing um, when it comes to the to the actual match day. So I think he's really helped build this Ukrainian side to maybe a level that has never been seen before in Ukraine in terms of um, sort of self-belief and the fact that they're not just some sort of, you know, other, other rands, but they're actually can go toe-to-toe with some of the big sides, as they have done over the past few years, where in qualification, Ukraine finished top of their Euro qualifying group that had Portugal in it, um, beat them 2-1 in Kyiv. They also beat Serbia 5-0, massive, massive result. Um, beat Spain last year in the Nations League and also drew with France um, in the World Cup qualifiers in March. So, you know, there's a lot of positivity, well, especially going into the tournament, I guess a few of those performances were a bit underwhelming um, once the tournament actually kicked off. But I think that Sweden game finally showed the world to those who don't watch Ukraine on a regular basis of what sort of impact Shevchenko's had because he was quite tactically an assured performance. He certainly got the formation right with quite a defensive display. And, you know, it paid off. Shit myself now. Brilliant. Um, now you mentioned all them results, I'm like, oh, bollocks. Um, Matt, I'll come back to you and hopefully get a bit of semblance of not shitting myself. Um, England have been, and this is not a, a criticism, it's just looking at stats, really. You could say it's slow to start because we've only scored, I think, one first half goal. The majority of the games have won it late on, and whether that's meant to be, you know, what we're meant to be doing. 
I don't know if it's working either way, but you could say that we've been better towards the end of games than we have towards the start of them. I'll come on to this with Andrew a bit more, but I think anyone who watched the Sweden game after the England game against Ukraine will see that both sides were absolutely on it, like out on their feet. They were knackered. Like every time I lifted my head up, it looked like somebody else who was just down, like a mm. cramp, injury, whatever it may be. Did England have to go at them immediately and test that? Or do you think it's still a case of remaining patient until they tie themselves out? How would you approach the game? Um, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I think we spoke about it briefly last night and said that we'd be inclined to go back to a back four mm-hmm. and get an extra attacking midfielder in there, whether that's a Grealish or a Mount or a Foden. Um, but Gareth Southgate's very methodical and we've seen with the Germany game that he doesn't bow down to any sort of outside pressure, whether that's from fans or social media or the British press. He'll do what he thinks best for the team. He'll do what he thinks best for getting the country a result. So I think we'll only truly realise what the approach is probably going to be like when that team gets announced about 60 to 75 minutes before kickoff on Saturday night. And if if we see a Trippier or a Walker come out or a Rice or a Phillips come out and we see like a Mount and a Grealish come in, then you might say, yeah, we're probably going to be on the front foot and going to try go early and, and, and pinch one and, and force them out. And if we do that, it could, and I say could, be a very comfortable evening. But if we do that and we don't score early, Ukraine get confident. If we get to half-time and it's nil-nil, do we then blow ourselves out? The longer it goes, Ukraine are going to start fancying, aren't they? Obviously, there'll be a point when they start thinking about extra time and we start thinking about extra time. But I don't think we'll truly know what the approach will actually be until until we've seen the line-up announced. But I wouldn't be surprised if Southgate sticks with what he went with on Tuesday night. But equally, I wouldn't be surprised if he makes a couple of changes and goes back to 4 3 3. We know he's very flexible and he'll change it. And he has done, he did it in the World Cup. He's done it throughout the Nations League and qualifying. And then we've played 4 3 3 for a while since. And then Tuesday goes back to a, a back three for the first time since I think October or November. So there's plenty of flexibility within that squad. And if you've got someone like Carl Walker who starts at right back, and someone like Saka plays, then you could almost fluctuate between a back four and a back three throughout the game because you could use Saka as a wing-back and tuck Walker in. But I'd imagine the approach has got to be slightly different from England because no disrespect to Ukraine, Germany, whether they're a fading force or whatever, have got better players than Ukraine have. Um, So there's going to be an onus on us to go and make the running, to make things happen. And they'll play on the break, I would have thought. I'm sure Andrew can tell us if that's completely different or completely wrong. But I'd imagine how that's the pattern of the game is going to set up. And if it's nil-nil with 20 minutes to go, then we'll see who who blinks first and makes changes. But I'm not sure. Southgate, we know, is, is very difficult to read. And he certainly does what he thinks is best and he's his own man. And I like him for it. So I'm not sure which way we'll go. But whichever way he goes, I'm I'm confident we can see off Ukraine because at the end of the day, we've, we've got better footballers. One of the big things they probably think about here that I've been thinking about, we've seen how much having 40-odd thousand fans in the stadium, let's be honest, the players reacted to it. Declan mm-hmm. Rice was genius up every two minutes. It was just like, calm down, mate. It's all right. We're, we're, we're behind you. Um, but being at Wembley is always going to make a difference, especially with the more fans you have in. We would have had 40-odd thousand um, I'm sure one or two of them will sneak through the, the lines somehow, uh, but we're not going to have that many fans in Rome. 
it's certainly nowhere near the kind of level that can make a big racket like they have done in the last game. Um, and I think we'll probably see more Ukraine fans um, going to the game. I, I don't necessarily know the, the travel rules, but as far as I'm aware, Ukraine kind of can, because I think tickets are on sale to Italian fans and Ukraine fans, whereas in England, unless you use a VPN, which I would never, ever recommend you do, um, if you are English, you can't even see those tickets in the portal. Again, I repeat, don't do that. Uh, please respect the rules. Um, but it's going to be big, that. That's going to be quite important to me. I think, you know, not having as many fans in, we've seen how it can affect things all the time in FA Cup ties right, for years. Do you worry a little bit, Matt, that it not being at Wembley and not having fans could have a slightly adverse effect with there being more Ukraine fans there as well? Um, depends how many Ukraine fans, I think, doesn't it? It's a, it's a weird one to gauge. There was something on the news earlier this evening and they said that they're trying to get a lot of expats in terms of English people into the ground, aren't they? They're trying to sell them to people that live in Italy or people that can come from mainland Europe where the rules are not so strict in terms of COVID and stuff like that. So I think they were talking of sort of 300 England fans. So it's going to be completely different, obviously, to 42,000 or whatever it was on Tuesday evening. Um, I don't know how many Ukraine fans are likely to be there. It could, unfortunately, be quite a flat atmosphere if that's if it's not going to be loads of Ukrainians because you'll just have a load of corporate tickets, unfortunately, um, and mixed in with probably Italian fans. And then it's it's potluck on who they choose they want to support on the night. Um, do they lean towards Shevchenko because he was big in, in Italy with, with AC Milan? You don't know, do you? It's going to be a tricky one to gauge, but I'd still back England. How many Ukraine fans are actually going to be there, Andrew? I'll, I'll use your superior knowledge here because I heard there was more than we're certainly allowed, but is it going to be a lot? Well, the general consensus, I mean, in Ukrainian media, no actual official figures yet, but mm -hmm. there's a sizable Ukrainian di uh, diaspora in uh, Italy, apparently over 200,000 of them. So I think a lot of them <laughs> are planning on heading to Rome. Um, I don't know how many have got tickets, obviously, because obviously, you know how we've anyone who's tried to get tickets for any of these games, especially the knockout ones, it was proved quite difficult. And I'm in a few groups on Facebook, and there's lots of people asking, "Can I have a ticket? Can I have a ticket?" From actual Ukraine, it's more difficult. I think it's similar to uh, England, where you, if you, you're either turned away in Ukraine to not be able to fly there for like non. You can only fly for like work reasons or if you get invited out or something like that. So it's all going to depend on how many, how, how many sort of are able to come from the EU and from Italy itself. But yeah, I expect there to be a lot more Ukraine fans and also the general consensus like Matt alluded to um, is that a lot of Italian fans will probably be back in Shevchenko and also the fact that a lot of Shevchenko's backroom staff are actually Italian. So that's mm. also another um, sort of footnote in the in the backstory there. We should probably just play at Wembley, Andrew, shouldn't we? Probably. <laughs> it would have made my life easier, to be honest. Yeah, that is true. Actually, we're all in agreement <laughs> on that. I said that tongue in cheek, but couldn't think of it. It does make all our lives easier, doesn't it? I mean, unbeknownst, I, I'm actually in Rome as we speak. <laughs> Who would have known? <laughs> um, just the way it is, you know. I just landed lucky. Uh, no, I wish that was true. Um, in terms of the the game itself, I, I touched on it a little bit with with Matt. I sat and watched sort of the highlights and like the the extra time is what I sort of watched. If I'm completely honest, in the highlights, but I watched the full extra time when I got back the next day and like I say you, you there was people literally like just dropping like 
by minutes, Swedish players, Ukrainian players. Um, how concerned are you that that game against Sweden could mean that come Saturday, like it's all come out of you far too much and you, you're not able to maybe cope with, with England if England perform the way that England can? That is definitely a worry um, for me and for a lot of Ukrainians because, you know, just even, not even just the fitness, just the sort of amount of emotions that were spent, especially in the minutes after that last minute equaliser, it can either carry you through, you can carry on that positive wave and try and like ride it out against against England or it's all going to come crashing down. And the thing about it is, is um, Fischerchenko's teams, um, Ukraine teams, over the past sort of five years since he's been there. There's a bit of this like curse called um, something that I coined second game syndrome, which um, when they play a second game in quite a short space of time, for example, you know, when you've got qualifiers and you've Mm -hmm. got two games in as many days or whatever, um, Ukraine normally perform quite well in that first match and then slightly fall apart in the second one. And that sort of looks like the current situation as it is right now. However... Um, the excuse that Shevchenko gave for that quite awful performance against Austria, the 1-0 loss, was that the players were really tired and, you know, after three games in a row, it sort of all caught up with them. But then they had eight days rest between that Austria match and the Sweden game. So a bit of extra time and maybe a bit of recuperation. And obviously it helped at the very end to keep, to get Ukraine just over the line against Sweden, who were also dead on their feet. Um, yeah, there are a few injury worries. Obviously, Artem Besedin, who was on the end of that quite poor challenge, regardless, some people want to say it's a red card or not. I disagree with Gary Lineker wholeheartedly, but hey-ho. Um, he's out for the tournament. He's out for six months with a fractured femur um, and some torn ligaments. So, you know what I mean? Um, although his loss was actually, ironically, um, you know, jokingly, obviously, we will hope for him to be better, but he's a bit of a... He's a bit of a tree of a striker in terms of things bounce off him. He's known as a defensive forward. So he's not really known for scoring goals. Love that term, defensive forward. Um, Yeah, Shevchenko Shevchenko (laughs) throws him on like to hold up play for a bit and like try and spray some passes somewhere. But he rarely has any positive impact. So it's kind of a silver lining that he's actually out because it meant that the third choice striker, the one that scored the winner, Dovbik, was given a chance, his first chance in the Euros, and he's a lot more dynamic. He's got a bit more pace about him, a bit more strength and athleticism. So quite looking forward to seeing him come on in the latter stages and hopefully maybe trying to switch something up. Um, I think as for any other injury issues, Yad Molenko uh, limped off towards the end of uh, extra time and there's no current update on whether mm-hmm. he's fit or whether he's going to miss the game or anything like that. I think we'll probably find out tomorrow in Shevchenko's press conference. But, you know, he's, even though he can't run pretty much after 70 minutes because he's just flat out, you know, all the injuries he's had over the past few years have just caught up with him. And, you know, match fitness, he's not played for almost a season. That's definitely there. He still brings something to the team. And Matt was talking about, you know, England trying to go for it towards the end of the match. And you also alluded to, because England have started quite slowly, it's probably the opposite for Ukraine. Ukraine have actually started very brightly in most of their games. Um, first half is usually pretty well, um, pretty well done, um, especially against Sweden. Against Netherlands was quite a, quite an entertaining affair. And especially against North Macedonia. So 
that's when Ukraine, I think, um, that's their sort of prime time to try and get a goal because come 70 minutes, like I said, it sort of starts to drag a little bit for them. Their feet get a bit heavy and uh, gets a bit more difficult. It's been a few times, I think, when you've scored two goals in a few minutes. I've watched I've, I've, I've watched all Ukraine's games apart from in full the, the first 90 minutes and only the highlights of the Sweden game. But obviously watched the, the Holland game, which is probably the best game of the tournament at the time. Um, yeah. Obviously, things have changed slightly last <laughs> yeah. week. Um, and the, the North Macedonia game, obviously, I watched as well. Um, and I think with both those games, you, both your goals came quite quick. I think we were like five minutes between each other, something like that. Um, so there is an, an element of, when we're talking about tired legs and stuff like that, a last-minute goal and extra time sometimes gives you that extra burst of energy. And it certainly seems that when you Ukraine score, that burst of energy kind of almost gets you onto another one as well. But that might be a bit of a simplistic way of looking at it. I, I don't know. I'm not a football coach for a reason. There's a reason I do a podcast and I'm not paid for it. Um, on, on paper, you look through the Ukraine squad and unless you're kind of well-rehearsed like you are yourself, Andrew, obviously, the names you, you look out is Yomlenko, who I love for what it's worth. I think he's, I think he's hilarious. The Coke thing was very funny. Great player. Uh, one of the players you enjoy watching, and obviously Zinchenko, who doesn't play left back so much for Ukraine. Obviously, he's a bit further forward. Uh, he gets put in midfield quite often. They're the two names that stick out. But how actually important are those two players if Ukraine are to pull off a shock this Saturday? Oh, absolutely. I think um, Yamanko is going to be extra motivated to prove, I think, some England fans wrong, maybe West Ham fans. Uh, just to prove, oh, look what I can do. Um, bit of loss of faith, obviously, which I guess maybe a bit unjustified just because he's not been the best, but injuries have literally just not been on his side, unfortunately, in, in England. And maybe he left Ukraine slightly too late in his career to fully get the benefits of what, what he could have brought. However, Zinchenko, you alluded to, he plays in midfield for Ukraine. However, in the Sweden game was his first ever start at left wing back. And that was his best performance of the tournament. Um, he was literally defensively. I think he had like about four or five tackles, fair few interceptions. And then he was like really open uh, and able to attack freely um, down, down the left. He got the goal and he also got an assist for the winner. So he was like Ukraine's man, the match essentially. And it sort of looked like in that game where he's finally got over the demons of his uh, Champions League final loss, which was a lot of people, I think, were thought that he was psychologically hanging over him. Um, but yeah, the same with him. Obviously, he's teammates with a lot of the England squad, you know, um, Raheem Sterling, Carl Walker, etc. And he's quite good friends with them. So he'll be extra motivated as well to try and maybe get one over them. And I know that in the past, for example, when I think Ukraine lost 4-0 to Spain, there was a lot of like banter when he got back where everyone was like taking the mick out of him. And then the next week where, or the next uh, month when Ukraine won against Spain or something, there was like a lot of payback. Um, and the same with like the Portugal with Bernardo Silva. So, you know, in general... I think they're going to be very key. Zinchenko probably a bit more um, influential just because of just because he's a bit younger and he's got a bit more energy about him to actually influence the game after what we saw against Sweden. Yarmolenko will be good in bursts when he's on the ball. He'll be able to you know pick out a nice pass. Hopefully have a nice, hopefully have a few shots and link up with uh, our sort of big forward 
Roman Yadimchuk, who's very good at sort of laying off and with these like little fancy flicks and linking up with his um, sort of attacking midfield teammates. Um, otherwise, if we're looking elsewhere on the pitch, there's another player who's caught the eye recently. It's uh, Mikola Shaparenko. He wasn't a starter for Ukraine before the tournament, but he had a nice second half cameo against the Netherlands and he's been basically starting ever since. And he came off after about 60 minutes against um, Sweden. So he'll probably be one of the fresher players for that game. And I'm hoping that he's going to maybe show a bit more about him because he impressed, I think, when Dinamo Kiev played against Chelsea a few years ago. Um, and he's also been or had a few articles touted about him by The Athletic who are saying, oh, this guy has probably produced the most sort of unlikely um, sort of scouting for you know other clubs from his performances which not a lot of people were expecting him to be such a key player so he's a bit of a he's he plays central midfield um but he's more of like on the attacking sense a bit of a playmaker nice few crossfield passes good vision so yeah those three probably the key ones for me the, the big one as well in terms of like the players i think from the games that i've watched it was been kind of end to end the first three games maybe the group games and you've touched on it before about the, the defensiveness of the performance against Sweden which which it always worries me a little bit when you come up against a tactical manager and you're the favourites because you think it's like Steve Clark for example a lot of people said oh you know he, he might be able to get it right against England and if you go and based on results he did I've got other opinions on that but nonetheless the, the basis is that he, he got a result um, I think a lot of people will be expecting England to be the favourites, probably overwhelmingly, understandably. Definitely. Does that mean that Shevchenko is likely to go with a similar setup as he did against um, Sweden? Or or do you think he'll kind of do what he did in the first three games and maybe throw caution at the wind and think, why not? I think he's going to play it safe, to be honest. Uh, Sweden worked the formation that he picked with five at the back and uh, two defensive midfielders. Maybe there might be a bit of personnel change just to freshen things up. I'm not 100% sure who would come in, though, just because Shevchenko himself is rather unpredictable when it comes to stuff like that. Um, And he loves throwing in like a last-minute surprise. However, um, yeah, I think Ukraine would be rather defensive. They might sit back a bit more rather rather than how they did against Sweden, even though there was a defensive formation they gave it to the Swedes because Swedes, I think, had like the second least amount of possession in the whole tournament. Um, So, you know, it's all going to depend on how um, England press, I think. Um, Ukraine, actually, it's quite hard for them when they're against a team that's like got a lot of heavy pressing. Um, Depends on if Southgate's decided to go for that approach or not um, to see how that goes because um, that's one way to exploit Ukraine. But otherwise... Ukraine are very good at sort of um, trying to ride out these spurts and waves, especially like in that Netherlands game, that first half, there was a bit, there was like a period where Netherlands were like going forward and it was like, whoa, just calm down, calm down. And they settled after about 15, 20 minutes. So I think that will probably be the main aim. Um, Just don't be too nervous, which they were slightly at the start of that Sweden match. Um, hopefully the last minute goal is given a bit of a confidence boost and the fact that they'll be seeing all the sort of support from the stadium and also just from back home, it might give them an extra boost 
knowing that um, everyone's going to be behind them rather than on their back if they uh, if they put a foot wrong. Matt, I think England have to win. Simple as that. If England don't win, any of the positives are just like it's gone, really. And again, total respect to to Ukraine, but I don't want Ukraine to be Iceland. I think they're a far better side than Iceland, but I don't want them to be the hurricane on corners and that kind of horrible moment of like, oh God, what's happened here? That kind of thing that happened against Iceland. I want to beat them and I want to beat them convincingly, but football doesn't always work like that. Um, At this stage, losing in the quarters or or any game moving further forward because of the chance we have will be absolutely crushing. But how do we go about winning it, Matt, rather than just speaking about it? Um, I think we treat... Ukraine with the same respect that we treat the Germans because we said last night didn't we that or I did at least that potentially the Scotland game maybe that was the one where we went in and we thought we was just going to win the game I'm not saying that's 100% the case but it, it just looked whatever it was something got to England and we didn't perform we looked we looked scared we looked like an England team from years gone by where we looked terrified to play and we were playing with the handbrake on um, and maybe because it was Scotland and it was a, a derby, maybe the overriding fear of, of losing sort of was a detriment to, to a proper performance. But we've got to treat every opponent as if they're the best team in the world now because if we come up short in terms of application and, and doing the right things that have got us in this position then we'll get found out. Um, If you look at the France game against Switzerland two nights ago, they decided to change their system. Players didn't look like they had a clue for 45, 60 minutes. Um, And then for half hour, they looked like, well, they looked like France. (laughs) Um, But then they switched off again. And it's difficult at any level of football to, to to be playing with one mindset and having to try and flick it completely the other way. If England do everything that they've done defensively in the first four games. If they move the ball quickly like they did against the Germans, like they did in spells against the Croatians, like they did in spells against the Czech Republic, Ukraine won't live with us because we've got better footballers. The extra time against Sweden is going to come into account as well. That's going to be a big factor. They've had to go right to the very end. Um, But the thing for me in terms of England, if I was doing the team talk, is the intensity and the willingness to run through brick walls and play for the badge has to be exactly the same as it was for 90 minutes against the Germans. And then class should come through, class should tell, and we should win the football match. I'm pleased that you said that you would give that kind of team talk rather than Trevor Sinclair's idea that we should get Idris Elba in... (laughs) to have a, a chat with the players beforehand. I, I don't think that would work. I don't think I just I would want to do it. Who did he say again? Ray, was it Ray Winston? Was Ray Winston one? or someone, yeah. He's going to be giving you the odds at the end of the talk, though. It's pointless. <laughs> exactly, um, yeah. Until he's a bet safely. Bizarre. Must have landed on his head when he had that overhead kick. Um, on to you, Andrew. I'll give you kind of one of the... the well, we'll go on to predictions at the end, but the, the final say, I suppose. Um, it's the furthest Ukraine have made it. The pressure's completely off. Um, as you've so said, and as we 
most people probably feel. But once you get this far, you, you may as well go for it. They're not going to sit there and go, well, ah, well, fair enough. They're going to want to go for it. You know, that's what professional footballers do. Um, we've seen shocks in this tournament. I pray to God, not that I believe in them, but if I did, I would pray to them, um, that this isn't going to be another one of those shocks. But how do Ukraine become the next Switzerland, the next Hungary, the next... Uh, giant killer if you prefer and um, what is it you've got to do to win this game well i think we were talking about the fans for whatever reason ukraine do perform a lot better when they've got active audible support on their side i went and to they're a lot loud, of... aren't they they're loud yeah they're loud and i was i went to a lot of games last year um as i'm a journalist during covid times for ukraine and you know, when there's just no atmosphere and, you know, they're going behind or something like that, it's difficult to motivate the team. And, you know, when they've got that roar behind their back, it, it literally, you know, as cliche as it sounds, it is a 12th man for them. And that's something that's impacted them throughout, I think, even before qualifying and all that sort of stuff. It's sort of like a support that Ukraine have never really had before um, in terms of how loud and how behind they are and how also Ukraine the team themselves are quite connected with with the fans, similar to how England are at the moment. You know, they do all these YouTube videos, they do all that other stuff. Ukraine actually done quite very similar stuff, um, maybe using England as even a even as a bit of a blueprint. But that's helped a lot. Similarly, what probably will be needed from them is that I guess just you know throwing it to the wind, not thinking that okay. England are probably uh, maybe thinking a bit like England aren't, you know, world beaters in the sense that they haven't actually achieved anything in, you know, the past, however long it is. So maybe just to be a bit less, a bit less fearful of them, show them a bit of respect, of course, but take it to them because, you know, Ukraine have always had relatively close games with England in the past. Um, I think the last two fixtures were both draws. Um, in World Cup 2014 qualifying, if I'm not wrong. And then before that, Ukraine, obviously this won't actually have an impact, but there's a, there are a few players in the squad who were in the last Euros game that Ukraine played against England. Remember the ghost goal of John Terry clearing oh, no. it off the line? Yeah. Um, and so maybe there's a bit of revenge on the cards in that perspective. But, you know, in general, I think they're just going to go out... Um, as long as they show a positive performance, you know, regardless of the result, um, they can leave with their heads held high because, you know, not many people were expecting much from this Ukraine side after that Austria defeat. And, you know, they've suddenly turned it around sort of 180. You know, if they won it, it would, pro it would definitely be the biggest result in Ukrainian football history, um, both being England, but also making a Euro semi-final for the first ever time. And, you know, and then they could definitely count their chances of even making the final. So, you know how it is. A lot of people were tipping before the tournament, maybe a sort of one of these rogue sides would win because of, you know, how COVID has has been over the past year, or just like fitness, et cetera, et cetera. I think the fitness will play into account, like Matt said, definitely will have an impact towards the end of the game. And if Ukraine aren't, in it anymore come 70 minutes it'll probably be quite difficult to get back into it um so maybe if it is about nil nil or a draw going into those final stages potentially ukraine could get 
a result if all came to be. But I don't know why I've been saying I've been on a, a number of um, other podcasts over the past few days and um, a few TV appearances and they've asked for I've got a feeling it's going to go to penalties. I don't know why, but I can just oh. I can just feel it. <laughs> oh no, no, nah. Listen, to you, listen, to you, you've been so relaxed over penalties. Jesus, I thought we'd win one and it would be all right, and we're not. Um, on on that, you give us your prediction, Andrew. Um, Matt, you nailed the scores last time. Um, you were one goal out, but you did nail the goal scorers. Um, I said we've been on penalties, and now I'm pleased we didn't. Uh, Matt, 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 what is your, your your score prediction for for Saturday in Rome? Um, based on our defensive record, the fact that Ukraine were very very poor in that final group game, which indicates they can chuck in an absolute horror show from time to time, and then if you sort of couple that with what Andrew said about this second game syndrome where they play twice in quick succession. That fills me with a bit more confidence. Chuck in the fact that England have got better footballers. <sighs> Two new England in 90 minutes. If we do everything properly. If we don't, we might come unstuck. But if we go out there with the same attitude and the same mentality as we did against the Germans, then I think we see them off relatively comfortably. And I'm going to say 2 nil. I think we'll concede, first thing I'm going to say. But I think we're putting a good attack and performance. I'm going to say 3-1. Scorers, just because I love them, Grealish Hatrick. And if Grealish gets a Hatrick, I'll buy a wig similar to his haircut and wear it for the semi-final. I think if he gets a hat-trick and we win, you should grow your hair like Jack Grealish. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure the the offers of marriage will come flooding in, um, and I'm not taking that bet. Um, before we go, Matt, I realise I've never done this at any point. I'm sure the people who listen know exactly where to go. But obviously, we all have our club teams. You are Gillingham, mm-hmm. of course. I am Sunderland, unfortunately. Uh, where can people find your podcast? Because the, the new season is not that far away. Uh, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, and YouTube, and it's at Jules in the Blood TV. We do three regular videos a week throughout the season when COVID sods off and lets us do it properly. So that's Match Day Live, um, which is, as it says on the tin, Monday review, looking back at the weekend games. And then we do a midweek um, sort of weekly review, if anything, if there's any transfer news. And then looking ahead to the following weekend's fixture and then the odd player interview and fan chat and stuff like that yeah so if you can uh, drop a subscribe it would be greatly appreciated and as a lot of Sunderland fans do listen to the show I hope we're stuck in League One forever forever and ever and ever so you might as well get clued up on other League One teams as well while you're here um, God I hope that's not true I hate League One um, and before no, you, you don't go, you love it I don't I hate it I hate it with a passion <laughs> um, Andrew before I let you go if there's one thing that we need more of it's English people knowing more about Ukrainian football um, Sergei Rebrov, football manager legend for me back in 99, well, championship manager as it was, uh, just to kind of give a little bit of context to my earlier comment. But Andrew, where can we find your stuff, your podcast, your your work? Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Zoria Londonsk. That's just where you'll be seeing like latest news, updates, all that sort of stuff, um, bits from games when I'm when I'm at them. Um, 
for all the Ukraine stuff. And then I've also got a podcast that comes out probably weekly, I guess. Uh, we recently relaunched as Ukraine Plus Football, so plus is in the actual plus sign. And we've had a few cool guests so far. We had Clive Tilsley on. Um, we had um, Ukraine's uh, Shevchenko's press secret, personal press secretary. And we've got actually a really cool guest coming up after the Euros that we've already recorded that a lot of people know and a lot of people enjoy. Um, so keep your eye out for that. Oh, I like that. Dropping that little bomb. If you if you want to subscribe to me, we have occasional podcasts as well, including this one. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for subscribing if you have already. If you haven't, uh, do it if you want. If you don't, it's fine. It doesn't matter. Um, but thanks for listening. As always, cheers. Bye.